Greetings, everyone. When someone comes along claiming to be an apostle or a prophet or a priest or an evangelist or a minister or a teacher representing Jesus Christ, are you to simply take that person at his word and assume that he is what he claims to be? Do you realize that the Bible often refers to false prophets, false ministers, false teachers, and warns us to beware of such? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. Notice he said, take heed that no one deceives you. Take heed means that you have to pay attention to this. You have to give consideration to it. You have to expend effort and thought. Focus your mind. Concentrate on avoiding being deceived. He went on to say, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Not saying that those persons necessarily were the Christ, but they would come in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, saying that he is the Christ, and yet deceiving many. So they would come in the name of Jesus Christ, professing Christ, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In other words, claiming to be Christians and yet deceiving many. Despite their claims to be followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, you could be hard put to find a greater contrast than that between a sheep and a wolf, because wolves prey on sheep. But here are those who would appear to be something that they are not. On the outside, they appear to be sheep. They look like sheep. They, outwardly, they appear to be sincere and harmless. And yet, Jesus said, inside these individuals who appear so nice, so harmless, inside they are ravenous wolves. And he said to beware of them because they are false prophets, false teachers. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the question of how you can tell the difference between someone who is truly a messenger of God or, on the other hand, who claims to be a messenger, a prophet, a minister of God, and yet is not what he claims to be. In Revelation 13, verse 11, is a prophecy concerning a beast Now, the term beast is used various places in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation and Daniel. 
is used of a kingdom or an empire, metaphorically. That's what a beast at times is referring to, not a literal beast, but a kingdom or an empire. And generally these are Gentile empires, empires, powerful empires that are being discussed in the use of that metaphor. But it can also refer to the ruler of such a kingdom or empire. It can both refer to the empire or the kingdom itself or those who are the head, heads of those such empires or kingdoms. And so in, in Revelation 13, verse 11, it says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So here is a beast coming up out of the earth and having two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So here is an empire or the leader of an empire or kingdom who appears to be a lamb but speaks like a dragon. Now, Jesus is often referred to in the New Testament, especially metaphorically, as a lamb. So this is a beast that rises up that appears to have something in common with Jesus Christ, outwardly appearing to be a lamb, Christ-like. And yet, he speaks like a dragon or a serpent. Now, we might ask, how does a dragon or a serpent speak? Now, again, this is a metaphor. We're not talking about literal serpents here or snakes. We're not talking about literal lambs, for that matter, or beasts. These are metaphors. They are symbols used to convey specific meanings by way of analogy. And so, how does a dragon or a serpent used symbolically in Scripture speak? Well, in Revelation 12 and verse 9, Revelation 12 and verse 9, it says, The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. The serpent that appeared to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was not a literal serpent at all. It was an angelic being, a brilliant angelic being that is referred to as a serpent because he shares certain things in common with a serpent. And so here Satan is being referred to metaphorically as a serpent and a dragon. And it says that he deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels are cast out with him. So we see here that a dragon, a serpent, deceives. He speaks deceptively. He is cunning and crafty. His words can be so smooth and so appealing yet so deceptive. 
and people can be taken in by them. They can be fooled into believing things that are false. So what we have here in Revelation chapter 13 is a beast, in this case a religious empire, which appears Christ-like in some respects, but yet speaks falsehoods, engages in deception and lies, while appearing to be on the outside like a lamb. Going on in Revelation 13, verse 12, it says, He, speaking of this beast that we just read about, this false, deceptive entity, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now, earlier in this particular chapter of Revelation, as well as elsewhere in the scriptures, it speaks of this other beast that is being discussed here, and it too is a an empire, a kingdom, associated with this, the beast we're reading about now in Revelation 13 and verse 12. And this second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this is a religious entity that is associated with a political entity that is deceitful and deceptive and false and causes the earth, it says, and those who dwell in it. In other words, this is a worldwide phenomenon. He causes those on the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So this Deceiver is capable of performing miracles, or at least what appear to be miracles. And in verse 14 it says, He deceives those who dwell on the earth by these by those signs which he, he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who is wounded by the sword and lived. So here, this religious entity speaks deception, appears to be something other than what he is, and he even works miracles. All of this to deceive and mislead. Now, this prophecy has a dual application, as many prophecies in Scripture do, and we need to understand that the final fulfillment of these prophecies we're reading here will occur at the end of this age. Paul wrote about some of these things in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, we ask you, 
not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, that as though the day of Christ had come. In the King James Version, this the Greek term rendered had come here is rendered is at hand. Not necessarily had come, but is at hand. Robertson's word pictures in the New Testament renders the same word imminent. In other words, is about to come. So what Paul is telling these people not to be deceived by any means into believing that the day of Christ is imminent. He said, and it goes on to explain, he says in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless certain things happen first. Unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So here is a blasphemous figure who claims the prerogatives of God and seeks to be worshipped. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul had explained this to them as he was with them. And now you know what what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. So he says there will be a particular time when this man of sin will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the law and, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Notice that this lawless one is going to be revealed just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. And when when he is revealed, then we will know that the, the coming of Jesus Christ is near because Jesus Christ is going to destroy him at the time of his coming. It says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, think for a moment about what we just read in Revelation chapter 13 about this beast this beast empire, this beast entity, this beast leader who has the power to work signs, miracles. It says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
Now there's actually a lot we can glean from these verses in terms of deception and how deception is accomplished and the instruments through which deception is accomplished and how to avoid being deceived. And some of this we will get into more specifically in this sermon. Regarding this chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2, a number of people have asked me for an explanation of the details of this prophecy. It's not my purpose today to discuss all the details about this prophecy, and I will endeavor, plan to do this at a later time, but this is not my purpose today. But there are certain features of the prophecy that I want to highlight in connection with the subject we're dealing with in today's sermon. How you can avoid being deceived. How you can know whether someone who claims to be a minister of God, a minister of Jesus Christ, a messenger of God, is actually what he is claiming to be. Notice here that Paul said the coming of Christ was not at that time, the time that he was writing to the Thessalonians, that the coming of Christ was not at that time to be thought of as being at hand or imminent. And Paul pointed out that there are specific prophecies that must be fulfilled before the coming of Christ would occur. Now some have claimed that Paul taught and believed that Jesus Christ was about to come at that time and that he would come back to the earth in Paul's lifetime. Paul did not believe that. Paul specifically stated that it was not time for Christ's coming, that Christ's coming was not imminent at that time, and that there were certain things that had to occur before the time would come, and they would occur at the time that they were to occur. And he, frankly, did not speculate. We don't find any speculation, actually, in the New Testament or anywhere else in the Bible about the specific date or imminence of Christ's coming. You do find timelines and indications relating to the progression of prophecy. But neither Paul nor any other writer in the New Testament ever claimed that Christ was coming back during their lifetimes. The coming of Christ was to occur only after certain prophecies were to be fulfilled. Some of these prophecies being discussed right here in the book of Thessalonians and things that he had discussed with them and explained to them when he was present among them ministering to them. No doubt the prophecies that Paul had discussed with them in connection with the man of sin and the coming of Jesus Christ included specific prophecies in the book of Daniel that discussed these same subjects. It's very likely, it's virtually certain, in fact, given the subject matter here and what Paul said, that Paul had discussed with the Thessalonians the prophecies in the book of Daniel relating to the man of sin and the coming of Christ and perhaps other prophecies 
as well along the same lines. Note that this man of sin is depicted as being in a state of rebellion against God. He is opposing God. He is claiming the prerogatives of God, saying in effect that he is God. Also, we're told here that he is associated with sin, with lawlessness, with unrighteousness. But he also has the power to work deceptive miracles. Miracles which lead people to believe that he is something other than what he actually is. To lead people to be deceived. He practices deception like Satan with lies. And people are taken in by his deceptions because they refuse to believe the truth. They do not receive the love of the truth. They don't want to believe the truth. And the point here is that there is a powerful deception involving a deceiver, one who even claims the prerogatives of God, yet who is not God. And those who refuse to believe the truth will be taken in by his deceptions. And many will perish in their state of having been deceived. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. As we read in Revelation 12 verse 9, the whole world is deceived by Satan. Revelation 13, we read that the Beast deceives the people of the earth. In Revelation 13 and verse 3 concerning the first beast that is discussed in that chapter, it says, All the world marveled and followed the beast. And that beast, the first beast, is a political entity associated with the second beast, as we mentioned. Elsewhere, these rulers, the rulers, the individuals associated with these prophecies are referred to as the beast and the false prophet, two individuals, individual leaders of these empires or these kingdoms. And going on in Revelation chapter, by the way, you can read that in Revelation 19 verse 20 as well as several other verses having to do with these rulers being referred to as the beast and the false prophet. And they will be destroyed by Christ at his coming. They will be cast in to the lake of fire. In Revelation 13, verse 14, going on it says of this religious entity that he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived, as we read. In verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this individual not only causes people to worship the first beast, but he also causes people to worship the image of the beast. 
And if they refuse to worship the image of the beast, they are to be killed. On November 18th, 13-2, November 18th, 13-2, Pope Boniface VIII issued a papal bull titled Unum Sanctum, which the term Unum Sanctum are the opening words of this statement, this papal bull, as it's called. But they are the opening words of that document. And the words Unum Sanctum are Latin for one holy, as in one holy universal apostolic church, which is what the church represented by the Pope claims to be. And this church, this Roman church, not only is headquartered in the capital of the ancient Roman Empire, but it was also structured on the model of the Roman Empire, which is pictured in the book of Daniel and elsewhere in the Bible as a beast. And this church was structured on that model. And so, metaphorically, the church itself is an image of the Roman Empire. It's an image of the beast. Translated into English, the bull states, in part, quote, We venerate this church. We venerate this church. In other words, we worship this church. We worship this image of the beast. The meaning of the Greek term proskuneo, which is translated worship in Revelation 13 verse 15 is the meaning of that word according to Strong's lexicon is to fawn, to prostrate oneself in homage, to reverence, to adore. The Greek word translated worship means to fawn, to prostrate oneself in homage, to reverence, to adore. The word venerate, as used in the papal bull, essentially means the same thing. The word venerate, or the Latin word in the original venerator, is rooted in the name of the goddess Venus and includes the meanings according to the 1913 Webster's Dictionary to regard with reverential respect, to honor with mingled respect and awe, to reverence, to revere, or as a synonym, to adore. Essentially the same meaning as is applied to the Greek word used there in translated worship. According to the English thesaurus, the word venerate, the word synonymous with the word venerate, include revere, to pay homage to, to kneel to, to bow to. Essentially the same meaning as the Greek word. 
So the statement in the this document is that we venerate or we worship this church, this image of the beast. In the papal bull, the church in the person of the pope claims supreme authority over both over the entire world and some would say even the entire universe both spiritual and temporal and in that document the pope is equated to Christ as the one head of the church the one head of the holy universal apostolic church The papal bull Unum Sanctum concludes with the statement as translated into English, Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. We declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Notice it doesn't say be subject to Jesus Christ, but to the Roman pontiff. And it was on the basis of these claims that the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages exercised its power over temporal authorities to cause the deaths of millions of people who were judged unwilling to worship the beast. And these things that happened in the Middle Ages, these claims that are made in this document and similar claims made many in many other similar documents over the centuries, these are a precursor of things to come, things that will happen at the end of this age. And the vast majority of the world's population will be caught up in a massive deception and rebellion against God because they did not love the truth. They rejected the truth. They rejected God's word. Now, perhaps you do not consider yourself to be in the world as it sometimes is expressed by people who are in the church of God or sometimes various other churches, they say we're, we're, we're not in the world, we're, we're separate from the world. Perhaps you consider yourself a Christian and, and you would not be, you do not consider yourself being willing to worship any man. Perhaps you are a Sabbath keeper even could you be deceived as a sabbath keeper even a member of the church of god could you be deceived actually there are sabbath keeping churches sabbath keeping groups and leaders that make claims very similar to the some of the claims that we read about in this document unum sanctum 
churches that claim if you're not part of their church, you can't have salvation. That if you don't follow their leader, you're not really a part of the body of Christ. And other claims. And there are people that believe that they have to be a part of some particular church organization in order to have salvation. They've been told that. That they have to that they have to virtually worship some particular leader who has some special uh, inside track to communing with God that others are not privy to and you've got to do what this leader says believe whatever he says no matter how foolish or false to have salvation some believe that all you have to do to have salvation is be in a Sabbath keeping church or a Sabbath keeping group of some sort or another Remember that the people who instigated the crucifixion of Jesus Christ were Sabbath keepers. Just keeping the Sabbath itself does not mean you you are immune from deception, as we will see. Many Sabbath keepers down through the centuries have been deceived about lots of things. We can look at what happened to the nations of Israel and Judah in ancient times as an object lesson concerning this subject. In Israel, there were priests and prophets responsible for teaching the people about God and his laws. And they were to be God's spokesmen. They were his messengers. The Hebrew word most often translated prophet in English translations of the Old Testament is nabi, from a root word which means to utter or to speak. The English word prophet is from the Greek word prophetes, which means one who speaks forth. And as we read in Helps Word Studies concerning this term prophet, it says a prophet declares the mind, the message of God, which sometimes predicts the future, and more commonly speaks forth his message for a particular situation. So some people think of a prophet as one who foretells the future, and that sometimes is the case, but not necessarily. A prophet is one who has a message, who speaks a message under the inspiration of God if he's a true prophet. True prophets speak under God's direction. And they speak under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. So here the message is, a, is God's message that's being spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In Ezekiel 1 verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of 
the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So the word of the Lord had come to Ezekiel the prophet. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 20, Above all you do well if you recognize this, no prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse, that is, no true prophecy is what he's referring to. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the, the prophecies, the writings, the material that is preserved in the scriptures are words from God. They are the message of God to the human family. And they were given through the inspiration of his spirit. These prophets were messengers of God. Isaiah 44 and verse 26 speaks of God who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. So God has messengers, individuals who have been given the responsibility for conveying his message. In Hosea, in, excuse me, in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then, in verse 13, it says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people. So Haggai the prophet was the Lord's messenger and he was speaking the Lord's message to the people. In Malachi 3 and verse 1, we read this, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Notice here that there are actually two messengers being discussed, a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord, and then the Lord himself is spoken of as the messenger of the covenant. In Matthew 11, verse 9, Jesus said to the people there among the Jews, what did you go out to see? A prophet? He was speaking of John the Baptist. He said, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy, at least in part. And he was one who came with a message, speaking a message, preaching a message of repentance about the kingdom of God also, about the coming of the Messiah.
In a sense, anyone who speaks or sings or writes under the guidance or inspiration of the Spirit of God is prophesying. Did you realize that when you sing hymns here in services, you are, in a sense, prophesying? In Exodus 15, verse 20, it says, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And so Miriam sang a song, and they danced and with musical instruments, and they were prophesying. In 1 Chronicles 25, verse 1, Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph, of Heman, and of uh, Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the number of skilled men performing their service was, and it goes on to give more details about that. What this is talking about are, are Levites in the temple service whose role was to play musical instruments and sing. And they, in doing this, they were prophesying. And that's one reason we, why we need to be very careful about the kind of music that we permit to be performed in the church. We don't want just any old songs being sung as a part of a worship service before God. And we've had some songs at various times in the church of God being sung that were simply not appropriate because they were not properly representing the truth. But in your hymns, in special music, and other occasions where music is involved in services, that is a form of prophesying. John in a sense, prophesied when he wrote the book of Revelation. As with many other prophets prophets in the Old Testament, John was given visions, prophetic visions, which he was instructed to write down. And in Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy, and in this, in this particular instance, it is largely devoted to things which were to happen in the future. There, it was to portray future events. Now, there are lots of so-called theologians that claim the book of Revelation had nothing to do with future events. It was just written to encourage Christians which were being persecuted. But that is the exact opposite of what the, the book itself says its purpose was to accomplish. 
It is a revelation which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. By the way, some of these things began to take place or were taking place at that time, but they didn't all take place immediately. They were beginning to take place in the process of occurring at that particular time. A few of the things that actually even already occurred, such as the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is discussed and referred to in the book of Revelation. But most of it was to to take place in the future, and it was a progression of events which brings us all the way from that time that John wrote the prophecy up to the end of the age and even beyond that. It says, He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the test. By the way, the term angel simply means a messenger. And in this case, at least part of the time, the messenger was Jesus Christ himself. But he bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So here is a written prophecy. And, of course, what we have in the Bible is a book of prophecy, a book of inspired teachings, inspired writing. So one can also prophesy by writing. By writing, by singing, by speaking. In some cases, even playing music. But in the Bible, we read of individuals also who were... Sometimes prophecy is a gift. It, well, it's always a gift, but sometimes the, when when we read about prophets, we're reading about individuals who are fulfilling a specific office, a given office, the office of a prophet, who were recognized as having been designated as spokesmen for God with a respect with a specific responsibility to act in that capacity as God's prophets, as his messengers, his spokesmen. As we read in 1 Kings 1 and verse 8, 1 Kings 1 and verse 8, Zadok the priest, Beniah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, uh, Shemaiah, Shema Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adoniah. Notice it speaks here of Nathan the prophet. Nathan was a prophet. He was one who in the administration of David, David's government, who was the king of course, Nathan was a prophet associated with that government. He fulfilled a specific responsibility as a spokesman for God. Actually, David himself was also a prophet, as is mentioned in other scriptures. In 1 Kings 16, verse 7, 1 Kings 16, verse 7, it says, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house. Basha was the king 
of Israel. Because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord and provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. Evidently killed some or all of the house of Jeroboam. And Jehu was a prophet sent by God with a message to the king in this case. There are a number of others in the Bible who are specifically mentioned as having been chosen to be prophets who fulfilled specific offices which are obvious as you read the context that deals with their actions and responsibilities. Some of these included Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and a number of others that are mentioned in the scriptures. So there were specific offices similar to the office of a minister or a priest. In fact, some of the priests were also prophets, and priests were also to act as spokesmen for God. And in that sense, you could say all of them were prophets in a a way. But not every prophet was a priest. God chose people from all sorts of different backgrounds to act as prophets, and he commissioned them as prophets. And so there were prophets throughout the history of Israel and Judah, and yet many among the people of ancient Israel and Judah who claimed to be prophets were not faithful. They were false prophets. In fact, you can glean from the scriptures if you read carefully that the false prophets in Israel and Judah usually far outnumbered the the faithful prophets. And the false prophets were speaking false messages. They were deceiving people. They were teaching lies. And there are a number of scriptures about this. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 15 Beginning with verse 15, it says, The elder and the honorable, he is the head, the prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Notice that here are prophets who teach lies. In Jeremiah 2 and verse 8, The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So here were prophets among the people of Israel who were not prophesying according to the word of God, but by these idols, these false gods. referred to here as Baal. And in Jeremiah 5, verse 13, it says, The prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. The word of God was not in these prophets. They were teaching falsehoods and lies and fables and 
deception. In verse 31 of Jeremiah 5, it says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And, it says, my people love to have it so. The people wanted to be lied to. The people did not want to be told the truth. They wouldn't tolerate being told the truth. And so, those who did tell them the truth, the true prophets, were often persecuted and many of them killed for telling the truth because people didn't want to hear the truth. They preferred to hear lies. They preferred to teach or to be taught lies and to believe lies. And so God says in this verse, continuing, what will you do in the end? There is an end result to these things. There is a, a consequence. There's an outcome to being lied to, to teaching lies, and to being deceived. And that's what we need to understand that if we want to be in God's kingdom, we have to strive to avoid being deceived because the people of Israel were led to destruction through being deceived by liars, by false teachers, by false prophets, by priests who are not faithful. In Jeremiah 6 and verse 13, it says, Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Here was a nation given to covetousness, to fraud, to fraudulent dealings, to immoral conduct because of their covetous inclinations. And were the prophets rebuking them? Were the prophets guiding them toward repentance and a proper relationship with God? In most cases, no, they were not. Because they were teaching falsehoods. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. In Jeremiah 14 and verse 14 the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. So here were prophets who claimed to be prophets of God, prophets of Yahweh. But they were prophesying lies. They were teaching lies in the name of God. He said, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. So they were just making up lies to tell people, perverting and twisting the word of God. Verse 15, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say... Sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. 
Notice, and it goes on in later verses to discuss how the people themselves will also suffer similar fate because they were lied to and they wanted to be lied to. And Zephaniah 3 and verse 4 says, Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Yes, they twisted and perverted the law of God. They taught falsehoods. They were claiming to be God's ministers, but they were teaching lies in the name of God, perverting and twisting the scriptures. In Zechariah 13, verse 2, Zechariah 13, verse 2, It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. This is the time after Christ's return. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begat him, or who begot him rather, will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through with when he prophesies. This is talking about someone who appoints himself a prophet and lies, teaches lies and falsehoods. In Acts 13, the New Testament, in verse 6, we read about a prophet. And it says, when they'd gone through the island to Paphos, this is talking about Paul and his companions, they found a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, and this man called for Barnabas and Saul and, to, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease from perverting the straight ways of the Lord? So here was a, a Jewish pro a prophet, a Jew who claimed to be a prophet, but he was a false prophet, and notice he was said to be perverting the straight ways of the Lord. He was perverting the word of God. And it says that he was full of deceit and fraud. That he was a servant of the devil. An enemy of righteousness. So these men that we just read about who were looked to as prophets, were not truly God's messengers, but they were deceivers. They were the tools of Satan the devil. They were his instruments to lie to people and to deceive them. In the same way, many who claim to be apostles or ministers of God, entrusted with God's word, are not faithful, just as occurred during the era of the Old Testament. So the same type of thing has occurred 
in the New Testament era. And there have been many who have claimed to be apostles and ministers of God who claim to represent Christ, who are entrusted with the word of God but are not faithful to it. They are deceivers. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 beginning with verse 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A true servant of Christ is a steward of the mystery of God, that is, the, the, the Word of God. A steward is someone who keeps and preserves what belongs to someone else. And any true minister is simply one who serves Christ by maintaining His Word. Faithfully. As Paul goes on to say in verse 2, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So any minister of God is responsible to God himself for being faithful with the word of God. For teaching it faithfully and truthfully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Beginning with verse 13, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church where there were false teachers who had come in among them. Now remember, this was in the church of God. This was in a church that Paul himself had raised up as an apostle and had ministered to. But here were people who were ministers in this church this Sabbath-keeping church, this church that had been established by a true apostle and who had been ministered to by other true apostles, but here were ministers in this church who were not true ministers. And they were being accepted by the congregation. They were being believed and followed. And Paul said here in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Don't think that false ministers only exist outside the confines of the true church. There are many, uh, probably virtually every period of church history there have been false ministers in the church and many of them no doubt thought of most highly by many people transforming themselves into apostles of Christ and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Notice that they transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, something that they are not. In other words, they look like true ministers. In some respects, they might behave like true ministers or talk like true ministers, but 
their deceivers. And they work works of falsehood. In Second Peter 2, Peter also warned about false teachers in the church. He said in Second Peter 2 and verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, as we've read here earlier. But he says, in the same way, or even as there will be false teachers among you. So this is a warning to us. Just like there were false prophets among the people of ancient Israel and Judah, there will be false teachers among you, you in the church, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways. Many in the church would follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Now, actually in the first century and in the second century, there were many false teachers in the church and it was not only people who were truly converted in some cases who became deceived and were fooled by these people, but eventually the deceivers displaced the true ministers and much of the world was deceived and is being deceived by them today. People who claim to be part of the church of God, ministers of Christ are being deceived. And this can happen to those even among those who are truly a part of the church of God as well as others. We're warned in scripture many times that we are to beware of those claiming falsely to be prophets or claiming title to other offices as spokesmen for God, but teaching deception. And you, if you want to be avoid deception, you've got to know the difference between the truth and a lie. In, De- in Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, it says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, let us go after other gods. So here's a person giving signs, miracles, perhaps. A miracle in and of itself tells you nothing about the genuineness of the prophet or the teacher or the minister. The sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he says to you, spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. In other words, you worship only God. And you do not worship men. You do not put men before God. You do not put a church, a religious organization, or any kind of an organization, or any kind of leader before God. You don't just turn your salvation over to some man because he claims to be God's representative, God's messenger, God's minister, God's apostle, God's evangelist, or whatever he might claim to be. Your worship is to be toward God. You're to know God's word. You're to understand what God requires of you. You're to understand what his commandments are. You're to obey the voice of God. And you're to know what his voice is and serve him. And it doesn't matter how convincing the person might be in terms of his persona or his miracle working powers or other factors. If he is advising you to depart from the word of God, from the commandments of God, and go in some other direction, then he must be rejected. You must separate yourself from such a person. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 21, it says, If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how are we to know when someone's deceiving us and lying to us? When someone is not what he claims to be, claiming to be a prophet of God or a minister of God, how are we to know? Well, he, he says one way you can know, and this is only one test, not the only test, but it says when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So if someone is telling you something is going to happen and it does not come to pass, as he said, that itself is evidence that he was not speaking speaking according to God's inspiration, but he was speaking presumptuously. He, was, he didn't know what he was talking about. Because God doesn't lie about such things. Men lie, but God doesn't. It says you shall not be afraid of him. In other words, you should not show him any particular deference. You don't have to follow such a person no matter what his claims are. He may say, well, you've got to follow me because, because I'm God's minister. I have this special relationship with God, and if you don't follow me, then you're going to go to hell. There were people 
ministers who were telling people recently that Christ would come on the Day of Atonement, 2015, because there were a series of lunar eclipses that to them indicated that Jesus Christ was destined to come during the fall festival season, specifically on the Day of Atonement, according to at least one individual minister who was telling people that. Well, that didn't happen. Christ hasn't come. He was speaking presumptuously. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything he says is false, but wouldn't you want to be pretty wary of someone's claims after such a failure? Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Matthew 7 and verse 13. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. So do we go along just to get along in this world? Do we just follow the popular religion because it's the popular religion, it's the accepted religion? It's the one that everybody thinks is is okay? Christ said that's the way of destruction. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. And then he went on to say in this same context concerning the wide gate and the narrow gate, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? He said, you will know them by their fruits. And one of the fruits is that they will tell people things that they want to hear, things that are that are not very demanding quite often. They will appeal to their lawless nature, their lawless inclinations. In this same context, in verse 21, Jesus went on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice that the narrow way consists of doing the will of God. And those are the ones who will find life. The exact opposite of what many ministers tell people that Salvation doesn't require you to do anything. Jesus Christ has already done it all for you. You don't have to do anything. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Here are are people who are ministers who have prophesied Maybe not all of them are ministers, but those would certainly be included. 
people who have seemingly worked miracles in the name of Jesus Christ, cast out demons and done wonders in the name of Christ. And Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The way of lawlessness is the way of the wide gate, the easy way, the natural way. The way that we feel comfortable with in terms of our human nature because we're inclined to lawlessness, to lawless conduct and behavior. A feel-good religion that allows you to practice lawlessness is a religion that will lead you to destruction. In Matthew 16, verse 11, there was a question about leaven. Jesus had told his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Notice verse 11, it says, How did you... How is it you did not understand, he was speaking to his disciples, that I did not speak to you concerning bread? They thought he was talking about bread because he said, beware of leaven. See, how is it that, uh, that uh, you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious leaders, the preeminent religious leaders among the Jews at that time. They were, people like to talk about the church as being God's government, quote-unquote, as though the church of the church is somehow equivalent to the kingdom of God and the government of God. And so whatever the church tells you to do, that's what you do. Whatever the church says is the truth, that's what you believe because the church said it. And people, I've, I've heard people often say, well, what does the church say about this or that or something else? As though that's the final that's the final deciding factor is what does the church quote the church say about it interestingly quite often the same people when they want to do something the church teaches you should not do will do exactly what they want to no matter what the church says but that's another subject <laughs> but anyway <coughs> here was here were the people who had been been commissioned by God to teach his word to the people and what did Jesus say? He said, beware of their doctrines. Beware of their teachings. And do you know why he said that? Because much of what they taught was false. Even though they were the official religious leaders among the chosen people of God at the time. And yet they were teaching falsehoods and lies wound up instigating the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. 
in Mark chapter 12, verse 38, Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. Oh yes, they love their vestments, as they're called. Their special clothing that marks them as special people. Having these exalted ranks and offices. Beware of the scribes who go around in long robes. Love greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, hello, Rabbi. Hello, minister so-and-so. Or father so-and-so, or whatever their title might be. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts. Oh, yes, they, they have their perks and their privileges because they are the exalted leaders. But, as it says in verse 40, who devour widows' houses. In other words, they make a pretense of religion, but they have no conscience about taking undue advantage of their position to steal and to commit fraud. And they, for a pretense, make long prayers. It says these will receive greater condemnation. Yes, God holds those who are claiming to be ministers to a higher standard, actually, than others, although we're all going to be judged for our conduct. But they're going to be held to a greater standard, a a greater condemnation because of their influence over others and how their conduct and their lying and so forth has affected other people. Colossians 2 and verse 8, we're told, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Who would be, who would it be? Paul was writing to a church here, presumably of converted people. Who would it be that would be? in the best position to cheat them through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. In a church, the person that is most likely to be in a position to cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, in other words, lying, spinning fables, falsehoods, would be the leaders, the ministers. And Paul said, don't let anyone do that to you. You don't just have to follow somebody because he claims to be a minister or is in a position of being a minister or a leader of a church, any church. He was writing to people in the church of God here. They had people coming in who were filling influential roles, ministers probably in the church, 
telling them things that were false and lying to them, misleading them. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, John was again writing to converted people here, writing to the church, and he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And they're not just out in the world, they're also in the church quite often. And we're told to test the spirits to see whether they're of God. Jude wrote in Jude chapter 1 verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary, necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. A lot of people aren't content to teach what the Bible teaches. They want to invent their own religion. They talk about progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Which leads people off into paths that deviate from where they would be led by the scriptures. The true faith is found in the scriptures of the Bible. And that's not those are not going to change. But these proponents of progressive revelation, so-called are simply teaching lies. It says we are to contend earnestly for the faith which is once for all offered to the saints for certain men have crept in into the church unnoticed too long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, here were people who were teaching against the laws of God, teaching people to follow their lusts, contrary to the commandments of God. Now, it is implied in what we read in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that to avoid deception, we must love the truth. So one of the first keys to avoiding deception is to love the truth. And it would be good for us to ask ourselves, honestly, on a continuing basis, do I love the truth? Do I love the truth? Do I want to know more of the truth? And am I willing to forsake my own errors are the errors that I've been taught, perhaps inadvertently, when they are exposed as errors. Do I love the truth? If you want to avoid deception, you have to love the truth. Otherwise, you're going to be deceived to one degree or another. Also, in association with that of course you must love God 
In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked the question about what is the greatest commandment, and Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And we read earlier in Deuteronomy 13 that loving God equates to loving his commandments, to keeping his commandments. We've got to love the commandments of God because that's part of what loving God is. In fact, the commandments teach us how to love God and how to love our neighbors. In Psalm 119, verse 97, it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So we must love the truth. We must love God. We must love the commandments of God. Keep that in mind. I remember an apostasy that occurred in an organization of which I was a part at the time where more and more the commandments were undermined and finally the leader of that organization got up and explicitly told people that they were free to break the Sabbath. They were free to break the laws of God because they were under the new covenant and that old law had been thrown out. And many were deceived by that. Many who supposedly had been converted, presumably were converted, changed their their whole countenance, their their way of thinking changed overnight because some guy got up in front of them and said, you don't have to keep the commandments. It didn't matter to them what God says or what God's word says. The truth no longer mattered to them. What they what mattered to them was that a man told them, a man who was supposed to be a minister and who claimed to be a minister of Christ told them, you don't have to keep the commandments. And they believed it because they didn't love the truth any longer. They weren't loving God anymore. They certainly were not loving God's commandments because they rejected the commandments. We're to test by the standard of God's word, the Bible, the claims of would-be prophets, apostles, ministers, or others who claim to speak for God. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, test or prove all things, hold fast what is good. And some people think you, you, you prove it, but then you prove something and then you're done with it. You don't ever have to prove anything again. You know, you, uh, there were people who say, well, I've proven that this is the church, whatever church that might be. I've proven that, that, this, that this is the church and that's all there is to it. All the proving is over with. And if that's your approach, you're setting yourself up to be deceived because as we're reading here, the church has been has, has been plagued by false teachers ever since there's been a church. False ministers, liars, who deceive people. 
In Revelation 2 and verse 2, Jesus is speaking to the church of God. And he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. And this is Revelation 2 and verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. At least during the early years of the church, what we refer to as the Ephesian era at times, Many, evidently the majority of the Christians, having been taught by the original apostles to beware of false teachers, did what they were told and they tested those who claimed they were apostles and they were not apostles. And they determined that they were liars. But that... care about testing those who made such claims waned after a while and eventually false teachers became predominant among those groups many of those groups that had been a part of the church of God don't ever let anyone lead you to believe that you should not test those who claim to speak for Christ no matter who they are and no matter how long they've been around, you should carefully examine. Every time you hear someone get up to speak or teach or read something they write, you need to examine both their behavior and their teachings against the standard of God's word. Remember, Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. Their fruits include their teachings and their personal behavior. Here are some other things to look for to judge who is truly a messenger of God, who is truly a minister of God, or is not what he claims to be. First of all, would they lead you to worship another God? We read about in Second Thessalonians, here's this individual saying he is God. Worship me. We, we read in the document Unum Sanctum that we worship the church. There are lots of people who want to worship a church or a man. It, do you know of a, a minister? Are, are, you, are you exposed to the teachings of a minister? who constantly points to himself as though he were the one to be worshipped or points to the church as the object that is to be worshipped and venerated and which demands your ultimate loyalty. Such teachings are to be rejected. And if they would lead you to worship any other God, you know, gods can, uh, false gods come in many forms and guises. 
And if someone is leading you to into worshiping something or someone other than the true God, then you need to reject that teaching. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul was speaking to a group of ministers. And he said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, among the ministry. And he said also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. In other words, they would be seeking to displace loyalty toward God and the truth with loyalty to themselves. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 7, Paul said, Neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, and he's speaking here about the church as a field that is being planted and watered by ministers. And he says, Of these ministers, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. A minister is just a servant, a tool, who is intended to serve the needs of the flock in service toward God. And of himself, he is nothing. What makes the difference is God who gives the increase. Now, of course, ministers have to do their jobs, do them well, but that's not the key that's not the key factor in spiritual growth. It is God. It is the person's relationship with God. And in verse 21, Paul went on in this discussion. The, the reason he was discussing this is because there were people in the church who were putting too much emphasis on men and who are claiming loyalty to this minister or that minister or some other minister. And Paul said, that's wrong. You don't look at men that way. Your relationship is to be with God. The ministers are just here to help serve you and help point you to God. And so he says in verse 21, Therefore let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. Because men will let you down. Men are fallible. And you dare not put your trust in mere human beings. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 6, Paul goes on 
actually writing about the same subject that he's discussing in, discussing in chapter 3. And he says, These things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and to Paulus, another minister, for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. So we just don't we don't just attach ourselves to some minister, some man, and think that that's our ticket to the kingdom of God, or a church for that matter, a church organization of human beings led by some minister or, or overseer. Because men can become corrupt and churches can become corrupt and usually do over time. If the church of the New Testament, the church of the original apostles can become, become corrupt as it did eventually, then any human organization can become corrupt. The true church is a spiritual organism. It's not a corporate organization of men. The true church consists of those whose names are written in the book of life in heaven. Not on any particular church organization's membership role on earth. And the church consists of those whose names are written there are genuinely converted to have the spirit of God and not because they're following some particular human individual or other other than Jesus Christ of course now in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18 it says seeing many boast according to the flesh I also will boast for you put up with fools gladly. He's writing here to the church which had accommodated these false teachers, false ministers. He said, you put up with fools gladly since you yourselves are wise, as they thought they were. <clears throat> for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you. And this is what often occurs with these megalomaniacal Individuals who get in charge of some religious organization or political organization too for that matter but they basically make slaves of people they bring them into bondage they devour their goods they take from them as much as they can get if one exalts himself if one strikes you on the face they were willing to put up with all of these abuses because they thought somehow doing that was going to put them in God's kingdom, I suppose. But really it was leading them away from a proper relationship with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. And this is quite often what is done by false ministers. They are crafty, they are deceitful. Paul said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to handle the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, that is what a minister's job is, to explain the truth. By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So your role as a a member, as an audience of anyone who claims to be teaching God's word is to judge the quality of his teachings by the proper standard. And, of course, if that person is teaching the truth, demonstrably so, then you will uh, give the proper respect not so much necessarily to the person, but to being to what is being taught. Although certainly offices are entitled to a certain degree of respect, but not veneration, not worship, unless you're talking about God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine them, shine on them. Notice why it doesn't shine on them, because they don't believe it. They don't believe the gospel. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Paul didn't go around bragging on himself all the time and telling people how great he was pointing to himself, he pointed to Jesus Christ. He preached Christ, Jesus, the Lord, and that they were to submit themselves to Jesus Christ. He, of himself, he said, I am your servant. I'm here to serve, I'm to help, and I want to see you in God's kingdom, so I'm going to tell you the truth, even if it hurts sometimes which it did at times because especially the corinthians were had their share of problems as we all do another criteria that you can judge by as we've already mentioned is what is the person teaching in terms of the commandments of god is the minister teaching lawlessness. We already saw where Christ condemned those who practiced lawlessness. Notice what Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah 23 and verse 14. Also I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. Personal conduct and lying. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. That's really what we've got going on in our nation today on a very large scale. 
We are walking into a swamp of lawlessness on a, on a national scale, a world scale, really. No one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone, for from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart not from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, they just make things up. Fables, lies, falsehoods that they dream up out of their own imaginations. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has, says, has said, you shall have peace. And everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, in other words, who is lawless, they say, no evil shall come upon you. This, this is a consequence of ministers teaching a doctrine of lawlessness. Telling people you don't have to pay any attention to God's commandments or laws. Because you've been saved. All you need to do is profess Christ. And he's duty bound to save you. You don't have to do anything. And then others are even more blatant than that. Matthew 7 and verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, does what the Bible teaches, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fail for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. So if you hear a minister telling you you don't have to do anything, just love Jesus and Jesus has done it all for you, Maybe you ought to keep this scripture well in mind and turn to it and see what Jesus himself said. In Jude 1 and verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed too long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our, Sa our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18 for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh through lewdness. The ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty, that is liberty from God's laws, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. 
if you turn back into lawlessness after having come out of deception and falsehoods and lies and lawless conduct, and then you turn back again into it, you'd be better off to have never known the truth to begin with. Not that either option is really has anything much commendable about it. In verse 21, it says, It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment to deliver to them. In other words, you, if you are converted, if you have learned to honor the commandments of God, then you better continue down that path. But those who turn away of those Peter says it has happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire in Revelation 2 and verse 14 Jesus Christ again is speaking to the church and he says I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. There are people today telling people in the church, there's nothing wrong with eating things sacrificed to idols. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, a doctrine of lawlessness. And Jesus went on to say in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 20, Therefore I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. This really isn't talking about sexual immorality so much as it is idolatry, spiritual fornication and adultery, so to speak, although it could include literal sexual immorality as well in certain circumstances. But the essence of what Jesus is talking about here is idolatrous conduct and idolatrous teachings. In verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according your works so we are not to listen to those who would teach us to walk contrary to the commandments of God what about those who substitute their own commandments for the commandments of God which is what often happens without necessarily directly denying God's commandments, they simply come up with their own list of do's and don'ts, their own commandments. Jesus said 
or excuse me, in Isaiah 29, verse 13, it says, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. Jesus condemned the leaders among the Jews at the time of his earthly ministry because they had all these traditions, these false teachings, these commandments of men that they required people to do. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 and verse 7, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And he gave specific examples. You can read about that yourself in Mark chapter 7. But we are not to be following the commandments of men. We're to follow God's commandments. Now, that doesn't mean we are free to disobey, for example, the laws of the society we live in, the laws of this community or some other community. We are to obey those laws as long as they don't conflict with God's laws. But we're not to have people, ministers in the church, making up their own uh, lists of commandments in place of God's commandments. Those who teach lies and fables, who teach the imagination of their own hearts, are to be rejected. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, If I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. Fab- the word fable is the Greek word methos, which, from which we get the English word myth. It means simply a lie, something that someone has made up. And much of what passes for Christianity, popular Christianity is nothing but fables. The idea of going to heaven when you die is a fable. The idea that people go to an ever-burning hell to be tortured for eternity when they die is a fable. The idea that when you die, you don't really die, but you continue to live, that's a fable too. The idea that Jesus is going to come and rapture people up to heaven at the time of the tribulation or before the tribulation or after the tribulation, people have all sorts of different ideas about the tribulation. Some think it's going to last for seven years, some think it'll last for three and a half years. The the uh, and there'll be people will be in heaven at that time, having been taken up bodily from the earth. Some think it's ten days. That's their rapture theory. That's a fable. All of those are fables. Paul went on to say the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. 
from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. In other words, just speaking foolishness and falsehoods, things that they make up out of their own imaginations, fables. Chapter 4 and verse 1, now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So this is a warning to anyone who is a part of the true church because it says some will depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In verse 7, he told Timothy to reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. He, he told Timothy in chapter 4 of Second Timothy in verse 4 that there would be those who would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And that's happened to people many times down through history, people in the church of God who had been converted. And there are other warnings too about fables and lies and deceptions within the church of God itself. So ask yourself when you're being taught, is this something that is sound? Can this actually be proven? from the scriptures or is it something someone's making making up is it is it is he using scriptures in a dishonest way is he twisting and perverting the scriptures to make it sound like it, they teach something they don't really teach the job of a minister is to teach the truth paul wrote in ephesians 4 and verse 15 of ministers that they are to speak the truth in love and by doing that the church can grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ it is only by teaching the truth that the church can be edified so the job the responsibility of every minister is to teach the truth and it's the job of you as members to know whether you're being taught the truth or not and to demand that the truth be taught or go elsewhere. Peter warned about those who would twist Paul's writing and other scriptures and lead people to destruction. Notice he said in Second Peter 3 and verse 16, of Paul, he said, uh, also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, and this is one reason I'm giving this sermon is, to warn you about this so that you're prepared. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Those who do not 
faithfully teach the word of God are to be rejected. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 8 and verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, be diligent to Present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So, a minister is responsible for faithfully teaching God's word. In Second John John wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we have worked for, but that we may receive the full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So, is the doctrine being taught God's word? Is it the doctrine of Christ? Or is it some other doctrine? The only way you can know that, of course, is if you know what God's word teaches. And if you're checking up on whoever is doing the teaching, to make sure that what they're teaching you is sound and true and faithful to the truth. Scripture makes it clear that it is the responsibility of each individual among us to test by the standards of God's word, the standards that we've discussed, those who claim to speak for God or those who claim to be teachers or ministers of God's word. And... If we don't do that, then even if you are sincerely desiring to have a relationship with God, you can be deceived. And so you must choose whether you will hear and believe the truth or someone or something else. 